0: Good morning. Westridge. Good morning. How are you doing? Baylor University does this study, and uh, people were asked to agree or disagree with this statement, most evil in the world is caused by humankind. Eighty-nine percent agree. When asked to agree or disagree with this statement, human nature is basically evil 68% disagreed. So, the overwhelming majority agree most evil in the world is caused by humankind, but human nature is basically not evil. Now, we've got another dilemma here in our postmodern world, and it's this question of who's guilty? Is everyone guilty? Is no one guilty? Is that term passé? Last week, we asked the question, what does it mean to be human? This week, we asked the postmodern question, what is sin? Now, let's admit right off the top, sin is a word that those outside the church have come to view with distrust and perhaps even Ridicule, in part, because some churches have used the sin word as a club to punish people, to humiliate people. So if that's been your experience, take a deep breath today. We're not going to do that with the sin word today. But let's admit, too often in church history, when the word sin was used, it meant... Conformity to cultural preferences. You see, it's always easier to get cultural conformity than it is Christian unity. Christian unity is hard. takes work. It's messy. So it's always easier to just hang out with people that look like me, smell like me, eat what I eat, drive what I drive, listen to what I listen to, than it is to see humanity in all its diversity. Sometimes... Sin meant rules created by religious dictators used to control the masses. It was the opiate of the masses. So we've got the Inquisition, we've got witch hunts to live with in our history. But on the other hand, for many today, sin means fun, means exciting means it's party time. Why else would we call Las Vegas Sin City? City? Oh, you've been there too, huh? (laughs) Now, by that, they don't mean it's the place where you go to destroy your life, rip apart everything you hold dear, and in the process, lose your fortune. That's not what they mean when they say good. You're catching on. That's pretty good. You know, and I know what they mean is, wink, wink, you know, sin city. It's the place people in the church don't want you to go. It's the place where you go to do the kind of things those in church who use the word sin, like a club, don't want you to do. It's the place where you can go and live in sin and nobody cares. In fact, there'll be those that will applaud you for living in sin in Sin City. And you know, and I know what happens in Sin City. Guess what? (laughs) This crowd knows more about sin than the Bible. I, I swear I never get that kind of response. And so sin becomes synonymous with the church's attempt to keep you from having fun. Now, when we talk about having a biblical worldview, this is where we got to start. The major themes of the story, that's what this series is called, the major themes, the overarching narrative has to do with creation, fall, redemption, judgment. Those are the big themes. And so last week we introduce creation and the biblical worldview that we're all made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And that is very practical to us because that tells us where we came from, what we're to do, and where we're going. It explains the imprint of creativity in us all. It provides a basis for caring for all creation and elevates the worth of every human being. Today, is the biblical worldview of the fall. And it's also very practical because it explains to us that life as we now know it is not the way it's supposed to be. That you and I, we still live east of Eden. So take a look. It's a time in history when it was truly clothing optional. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's my impression of the serpent. Did you get that? Okay. And the woman said to the serpent, "Um, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You'll surely not die. I get better the more, the longer I go. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she, well, she took some of it, and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And like every dumb husband, he ate it. Is there any other kind? <laughs> and then, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, there's way more in this passage, this chapter, these chapters three and four than I can cover in this message. So I'm just going to stick with the big theme here, and hopefully if you want more, you'll study more, I'm going to stick with the big theme, the biblical worldview of the fall, and its implications to us. Here's the first implication to us, and that is, we all live in Sin City. Now, life in the garden, pretty good. Pristine environment, perfect relationships, harmony with the creation, no abuse, no shame, no guilt, no danger, no pollution. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creations in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It's what the Hebrew prophets would later call in our story shalom. The Hebrew word shalom. We translate it peace. But it means far more than the mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom is a rich word. It means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. When we use the term the fall, it begs the question from what did we fall? And the answer is, we fell from shalom. And as a result of this account in Genesis 3, we have the first mention of this word, sin. Now, I want to delineate between sins, lowercase, and sin, uppercase. As a result of the fall, sin, capital S, is our nature. Now, take a look at this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... And death through sin, and in this death came to all men, because all sinned, for uh, before the law was given, sin was in the world. Now theologians argue over the concept of original sin, and I'm not going to get caught up in that now, and how it's acquired, how it's passed down. But I'll agree, sin is part of who we are, and that we each in our own way have owned the sin nature for ourselves. So because of all the confusion in our culture, sin's either a lot of fun or it's a club to humiliate and hurt people. Let's define or perhaps redefine sin from a biblical worldview. Sin is directed, always directed toward God. A sin is any act, thought, desire, emotion, word or deed or its particular absence, that displeases God and deserves blame. Sin is a personal, culpable insult to our Creator, God. Now catch this and see the different twist when you understand sin from a biblical worldview instead of a pop culture view. God hates sin... Not just because it violates His law, but because it violates shalom. Because it breaks the peace. Because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. God is for shalom, and therefore He's against sin. In fact, we can describe evil as any spoiling of shalom. Now, the story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. It tears apart what God has joined together, and it joins together what God had put apart. Like some devastating tornado, the corruption of sin both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back to the formless void from which it came. When God created, He took the formless void... And he began some creative separating. He separates light from darkness, day from night, water from land, the sea creatures from the land cruisers... God orders things into place by sorting and separating them. At the same time, He binds together things. He binds humans to the rest of creation as stewards and caretakers. He binds humans to Himself as bearers of His image, Imago Dei. And He binds humans to each other as perfect complements. Now, against this background of separating and binding, we see the fall as anti-creation, the blurring of distinctions, the rupturing of bonds, not the way it's supposed to be. Adam and Eve, wanting to be like God, had the opposite effect, alienating themselves from God and from each other. Even the good and fruitful earth becomes their foe. The corruption of sin is spiritual aids the infectious systemic attack on our spiritual immune system that eventually breaks it down and opens the way for even more hordes of opportunistic sin. Sin's not only corruptive, it's parasitic. The biggest biblical idea about sin is that it's an anomaly. It's an intruder. Sin does not belong in God's world, but somehow... It's gotten in and it's gotten us. It's a parasite. It's an uninvited guest that keeps tapping its host for sustenance. Sin's not really an organism. It's a leech on an organism that keeps tapping its host. It's an uninvited guest. It does not build shalom. It vandalizes shalom. C.S. Lewis once observed, there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. The parasitic nature of sin accounts for the fact that good and evil keep showing up, have you noticed this, and even growing together. Acts of heroism and acts of atrocity in the same context. Think the Holocaust. Sin is fruitful because like a virus, it attaches itself to life force, And the dynamics of its host. Or put another way, HIV is like sin because it mutates out of range, even assuming different personalities in different settings. And everything sin touches begins to die. But we don't focus on that. For sin to be truly attractive, for it to really be tempting... We only see the vitality of the parasite glowing with stolen life. It almost looks fun. Second implication of the biblical worldview of the fall is this we all need an escape from Sin City. The first messianic prophecy is embedded in this chapter and it foretells the way out of sin city right from the start. I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your head, you'll wound his feet. Redemption. It's already being provided for. Because to speak of sin by itself, to speak of it apart from the realities of creation and grace, is to forget the resolve of God God wants shalom, and he will pay any price to get it. Human sin, it's stubborn, but it's not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to get it. The center of the story is not our sin. It's our Savior. To speak of sin without grace is to minimize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit in us, creating something different and new, and the hope that's out there of shalom. Princeton Seminary professor Cornell West says, I'm not an optimist. That's too thin. I'm a prisoner of hope. (laughs) So no matter what the corruptive parasite of sin has done in your life, grace is greater. The Bible says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow... To the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses, brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that man, how much more will those who receive, watch this, underline it, God's abundant provision of grace. And the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then a couple of verses later, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now it's true, evil rolls across the ages, but so does good. Good has its own momentum. Corruption never wholly succeeds. Creation is stronger than sin and grace stronger still and then the end judgment comes and the devil who deceived them he's thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever and then i saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it earth and sky "...fled from His presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that was in them. And each person was judged according to what he'd done, then death and Hades." are thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In biblical worldview, history is going somewhere. There is an omega point. And the fall will be reversed. And shalom will be restored. That's why I'm a prisoner of hope. Now, for two years, uh, I spent three to four days a month consulting with one of the largest churches in the Las Vegas Valley. <clears throat> that meant that I was on a Southwest Airlines flight at least twice a month. Now, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but uh, after a few months, I noticed a consistent difference between the flight leaving Chicago for Sin City and the, the flight returning to Chicago from Sin City. The flight to Sin City was full of energy. Loud talking, in some cases heavy drinking, even though it's 10.30 in the morning. They were getting a head start. One time, a guy gets on board late with a woman, and there were no two seats together. He looks like an extra from a Martin Scorsese mob film. Shirt open, heavy gold chain. And so the guy looks at another guy with an empty seat next to him and he says, Hey, I'll give you 50 bucks if you'll move to another seat so I can sit next to my bride here. That's the kind of macho that can only come from an Italian going to Vegas. The flight out. It continues as one big party until people giddily get off and head for the baggage claim with the option, by the way, of playing the slots while they're waiting. The fun never stops. And I must confess to you that if I heard one more flight attendant say, welcome to lost wages after we landed, I was going to strangle them. But then there's The morning flight, leaving Sin City, coming back to Midway, quiet, lots of heads down on the tray table, the alcohol is not flowing quite so freely, and the only movement is people getting up to go to the restroom, a lot. Those trips, 24 consecutive months, they affirmed what I already believed. The trip to Sin City, it's a lot more fun than the trip from Sin City. So I got to ask you where are you in the story? Where are you living today? You headed towards Sin City? Or are you ready to come back from Sin City? Back to the way things are supposed to be. Back to Shalom. Grace is your ticket. And today, it's time to get on board.